Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to show 244. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What a show, man. Hairs on the back of the neck, straight away. Give me a heads up. What's coming in? We have a fact article, Airships by Morgan Saletta. How cool is that? Main fiction is Peter Watts, a fantastic story by Peter Watts. Then we have Science News with our very own JJ Campanella. Then we've got an interview with Mark Zickery. Now, Mark was, you know, he's been on the show before. I've interviewed him, Hollywood writer. Mark's doing a Kickstarter project to get a little project off his off the ground, little project called Space Command, which is just doing amazing on Kickstarter. So I've got Mark on there as well. How about that? That is today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. <laughs> So straight in with airships. And it is, there's something about airships and science fiction that just, it's fantastic. So, Morgan, sir. Hello and welcome to another episode of Life, the Universe, and Everything. Today we're going to take a ride into a bygone era of grace and beauty when giant floating airships ruled the sky. 
Explore alternate timelines where imperial armadas of dirigibles battle for air supremacy and travel to a far future where mobile traction cities prey on each other across the great hunting ground of Europe. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Airships in Science and Science Fiction. Since time immemorial, one of man's greatest dreams has been to fly, a dream embodied in myths of flying chariots, magic carpets, and of course the flight of Icarus. Accustomed as we are today to a world of heavier-than-air flight, with behemoths of the sky like the giant Airbus ferrying hundreds of passengers around the globe at a time, it is easy to forget that passenger air travel was once exclusively the domain of airships, that the first passenger airline to make a round-the-world flight and regular flights between South America and Europe were not winged aircraft, but the giant, rigid-framed Zeppelin. Dirigible airships, such as the Zeppelin, were the heroic offspring of simpler hot-air balloons, or Montgolfier, as they are also called, after the two French brothers, Joseph and Etienne Montgolfier, who, in 1873, made the first-ever flight in a hot-air balloon. Balloons, as well as airships, have been a regular feature of science fiction ever since the days of Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, and Edgar Allan Poe dipped his hand in as well, with his balloon hoax, in which he reported that a balloon had crossed the Atlantic in three days, and an earlier story featuring a balloon trip to the moon. In fact, it is often said that Poe's story inspired Jules Verne. Verne was a great admirer of Poe, and published his works in French, prior to writing his own Five Weeks in a Balloon, about explorations in Africa, and later the justly renowned Around the World in 80 Days, featuring that great literary hero Phileas Fogg and his valet Passepartout. Airships are one of the areas where the lines between science fact and science fiction seem to continually blur and overlap, with one seeming to predict the other, and vice versa, as if in a delicate aerial ballet. For example, when Verne wrote Robert the Conqueror, also known as the Clipper of the Clouds, the Wright brothers had only just a year previously made their famous flight at Kitty Hawk, and airplanes were little more than glorified kites. And it is here that the dance between science and science fiction begins. Today, airships are largely seen as graceful dodos of the sky, an entire species doomed to extinction, or at least endangerment, by one fateful accident, the spectacular explosion of the LZ-129, more generally known as the Hindenburg, as it docked at Lakehurst Naval Air Station in New Jersey. In fact, the history is more complicated than that, and the U.S. Navy used helium-filled zeppelins and non-rigid-framed blimps for many years after the Hindenburg. But the basic premise of the Clipper of the Clouds, that powered, heavier-than-air flight, would one day rule the air just as Robur and his giant ship, the Albatross, lifted by helicopter-like rotors, triumphed over the great dirigible built by his naysayers, has come true. Nevertheless, dreamers and entrepreneurs alike have hesitantly signaled that we may at last be at the dawn of a new age of airships. While a great number of balloons and eventually dirigibles with keels were built in the late 19th century, the first truly controlled powered flight was by a French army airship, La France, in 1884. Most of these are long forgotten outside of specialist history books. Indeed, there is only one name that is universally associated with airships, and that is the name Zeppelin, from the Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin, the crazy count whose dream of rigid internal frame airships would improbably, and against all odds, come to life in a brief technological effervescence, and the giant zeppelins would rule the sky, an ephemeral floating world whose time would sadly be cut short by tragedy and technological change. The zeppelin was born on Germany's Badensee, or Lake Constance, when the old Count built a series of experimental airships with rigid frames constructed of lightweight aluminum alloy, and essentially containing a number of hydrogen gas bags or individual balloons, 
allowing the ship to be much larger than previous airships. A source of helium would not be discovered until several decades later as a byproduct of the American natural gas industry, and all zeppelins were lifted by hydrogen. After a period of experimentation with different designs and control mechanism, he finally hit on the right combination of powerful petrol engines, frame design and control surfaces or fins, and the LZ-4, his fourth airship, took to the air in order to demonstrate it was capable of a 24-hour flight. If it succeeded, the German military had promised to buy it. Unfortunately, during the endurance test, the Zeppelin experienced engine trouble and docked near Daimler Engine Works so its engineers could repair the motor. Unfortunately, while the airship was docked for repairs, a storm came up and blew it into a nearby wood, where it was torn open and sparks caused a fire which consumed the airship and, it seemed, the old Count's dreams. Indeed, it looked to be the end of Count Zeppelin's remarkable dream, his fortune spent and his airship gone. But thanks to a young journalist by the name of Dr. Hugo Eckener, then working as the Count's publicist, and later to become the world's greatest airship pilot, the German people had become carried away with Zeppelin mania, and the crazy old Count and his aerial dreams had come to embody the aspirations of the German nation. And, in a remarkable outpouring of goodwill, donations of money began flowing in from children, families, local clubs, even the Kaiser himself. And so the Zeppelin became what is probably the first high-tech venture ever to be funded by crowdsourcing. And in order to earn more money, the Count began the world's first commercial passenger service with not only Germans, but people from around the world wanting a chance to take a day trip aboard an airship. Before talking about what to me is the most fantastic airship voyage ever made, the record-breaking round-the-world flight made by the incomparable Graf Zeppelin and piloted by Commander Hugo Eckener, who went from being the Count's publicist to the head of the Zeppelin Company and the greatest airship commander ever. I want to explore what is perhaps the favorite use of the airship in science fiction, as a giant battleship of the air, as well as their actual military use, especially that of the Zeppelin in World War I. The possibilities of the airship as a military vehicle were clear from the very early days of balloon flight. Indeed, Count Zeppelin was first exposed to lighter-than-air flight in America during the Civil War era when tethered balloons were used by the Union Army for observation purposes. But it is in World War I that the airship came of age as a military aircraft, and its possibilities, and ultimately its limits, were pushed to the extreme in the now often forgotten First Battle of Britain. But science fiction writers began writing about the uses of dirigible airships in offensive warfare well before they were actually used as bombers for the first time by Germany in World War I. H.G. Wells' 1908 book, The War in the Air, features armadas of dirigibles destroying entire cities and a fleet of Asian airships flying in over the Rockies to combat the German armada after depositing a million soldiers on the West Coast. This sort of vast global war featuring imperial blocks and airships may sound very familiar to readers of the much more recent science fiction works of Michael Moorcock, particularly his alternate history, Nomad in the Time Stream, featuring Oswald Bastable, which is undoubtedly influenced by Wells's work, which, among other things, predicted the coming of global world war. The war in the air has many of the themes and tropes we've come to expect from a book featuring airships and warfare, the bombing of New York, vast armadas of airships, strange flying contraption of a variety of sorts, gliders launched from airships, and ornithopters. Incidentally, the idea of using an airship to launch aircraft was actually put into real-life practice with the flying aircraft carriers of the U.S. Navy, the USS Macon and the USS Akron, rigid airships that launched and retrieved Sparrowhawk biplanes with an ingenious trapeze-like device. But I digress slightly. In Wells's book, the hero, Bert Smallways, becomes by chance entangled in a German air fleet bombing of New York City, led by the German Prince Karl Albert. 
Following the bombing of New York, global war erupts, as described in this passage. Musing profoundly, Kurt led the way across the rocks toward the distant waterfall. For a time, Bert walked behind him in the character of an escort. Then, as they passed out of the atmosphere of the encampment, Kurt lagged for him to come alongside. We shall be back in it all in two days' time, he said, and it's a devil of a war to go back to. That's the news. The world has gone mad. Our fleet beat the Americans the night we got disabled. That's clear. We lost eleven, eleven airships certain, and all their aeroplanes got smashed. God knows how much we smashed and how many we killed. But that was only the beginning. Our start's been like firing a magazine. Every country was hiding flying machines. They're fighting in the air all over Europe, all over the world. The Japanese and Chinese have joined in. That's the great fact. That's the supreme fact. They pounced into our little quarrels. The yellow peril was a peril after all. They've got thousands of airships. They're all over the world. We've bombarded London and Paris. And now the French and English have smashed up Berlin. And now Asia is on top of us all. It's mania. China on the top. And they don't know where to stop. It's limitless. It's the last confusion. They're bombarding capitals, smashing up dockyards and factories, mines and fleets. Did they do much to London, sir? asked Bert. Heaven knows. He said no more for a time. The War in the Air is part of the alternate history of Alan Moore's and Kevin O'Neill's comic series and graphic novel, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, featuring a bevy of literary characters such as Dr. Jekyll and his alter ego Hyde, Mina Murray, from Bram Stoker's Dracula, and an opium-addicted Alan Quartermain. In the League's universe, the entire timeline is based on literary events, including Wells's The War in the Sky, and events and characters from works ranging from Shakespeare's plays to the Cthulhu mythos. This history is described in The New Traveler's Almanac, a series of MI5-type dossier-like texts at the end of each issue in Series 2 of The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. While I also enjoyed the movie, which is just plain fun and a reasonable adaptation despite some major changes to plot and character, the artwork and plot of the graphic novels is something no serious lover of science fiction, and particularly of alternate histories, should ignore. In real-world history, it was in World War I that the rigid airship came of age as a military machine. Used for reconnaissance by various countries, it was Germany with its technologically advanced Zeppelin works that pushed this new technology to the limits, using the Zeppelins as aerial raiders. With this new flying bomber, the Germans hoped to rule the sky and bring the mighty British Empire to its knees. The first generation of Zeppelin raiders, with pilots trained by Hugo Eckener, who in spite of his personal reservations about the war was nevertheless a patriot, were sent on night raids over the coast of England, but were barely capable of making the journey carrying their cargo of two tons of bombs. But in May 1915, Kaiser Wilhelm sent his newest Zeppelin, the L-31, on its first raid of London, where it dropped some 150 bombs, killing seven people, starting numerous fires, and spurring German hopes that the Zeppelin might be capable of bringing England to its knees. Douglas Botting's book, Dr. Eckener's Dream Machine, is a fascinating and thrilling history of the Zeppelins, and I've taken the following accounts from the book, which I highly recommend to any airship nerds like myself out there. On September 8th of 1915, Lieutenant Commander Heinrich Matthey flew that raid over London that, while lasting only 10 minutes, left behind it a swath of destruction in the heart of London, though he missed his principal target, the center of English finance, the Bank of England. London was not unprepared for the raid, and its anti-aircraft guns tried valiantly, but unsuccessfully, to bring the Bahamut down, wrote Matthew. A sudden flash and a narrow band of brilliant light reached out from below and began to feel around the sky, then a second, third, fourth, fifth, and soon a score of crisscrossing ribbons ascended, 
tentacles seeking to drag us to destruction. Then from below came an ominous sound that deadened the noise of motors and propellers, little red flashes and short bursts of fire. From north and south, from right and left, rolled up from below the sound of guns. When the first searchlights pick you up and you see the first flash of guns, your nerves get a little shock, but then you steady down and put your mind on what you are there for. On the ground, the Zeppelin raid was met with horror, awe, even grudging admiration at both the audacity of the thing and the sinister, ethereal beauty of the raider herself. In London that night, an American journalist, W.E. Shepard, described the scene. The traffic is at a standstill. A million quiet cries make a subdued roar. People stand gazing into the sky from the darkened streets. Among the autumn stars floats a long, gaunt zeppelin. It is dull yellow, the color of the harvest moon. The long fingers of searchlights, reaching up from the roof of the city, are touching all sides of the death messenger with their white tips. Great booming sounds shake the city. They are zeppelin bombs, falling, killing, burning. And D.H. Lawrence wrote to his friend Lady Ottoline Morell of the raid, We saw the zeppelin above us, just ahead, amid a gleaming of clouds, high up, like a bright golden finger, quite small, among a fragile incandescence of clouds, and underneath it were splashes of fire as the shells fired from earth burst. Then there were flashes near the ground and the shaking noise. It was like Milton. Then there was fire in heaven. But it was not angels. It was that small golden zeppelin, like a long oval world. High up, it seemed as if the cosmic order were gone, as if there had come a new order, a new heaven above us. I cannot get over it, that the moon is not queen of the sky by night. So it is the end. Our world is gone, and we are like dust in the air. George Bernard Shaw also saw the arrival of Zeppelin from his home north of London in Herefordshire and wrote, The Zeppelin maneuvered over the Wellwyn Valley for about half an hour before it came round and passed Londonwards with the nicest precision over our house. It made a magnificent noise the whole time, and not a searchlight touched it. What is hardly credible, but true, is that the sound of the Zepp's engines was so fine and its voyage through stars so enchanting that I positively caught myself hoping next night that there would be another raid. But the Zeppelin's dominance of the sky was to be short-lived. The development of incendiary bullets to be fired from fighter planes brought the military aspirations of the Zeppelins crashing down in incandescent hydrogen flames, much as the Hindenburg brought the days of the passenger airship down in that unforgettable rain of fire. While the dreams of using the Zeppelin to bring England to its knees by bombing proved fruitless, the Zeppelin did prove itself as a long-range aerial scout for the German Navy in the Battle of Jutland. And, with the end of the war, Hugo Eckener was once again free to explore his dreams of using the airship for peaceful purposes, for passenger travel and global postal services, roles in which the Zeppelin, particularly the Graf Zeppelin, would capture the world's imagination. For a time, it was the sleek, silvery, aquatic form of the great Zeppelins that would rule the airways. And there is no better example of this than the Graf Zeppelin's round-the-world voyage of 1929. While the first aerial circumnavigation was performed by the United States Air Service in 1924, the Graf Zeppelin's voyage was the first-ever passenger voyage and took only a remarkable three weeks, setting a world record for speed that would, of course, not last, but also a record for style, which, in my opinion, has never been beat. Once again, I am indebted to Douglas Botting's Dr. Eckener's Dream Machine, for its detailed history of the round-the-world flight. Thursday, August 15, 1929, Friedrichshaven, Germany, a lakeside town at the edge of the Badensee, has been awake all night with the sound of jazz, with the babble of foreign voices, and the expectation of the great event to take place at dawn. 
At three in the morning, cars begin arriving at the airfield at the edge of town, and passengers step out, carrying suitcases in their hands. Most are gaping at the giant hangar before them. Lady Grace Hay Drummond Hay, a fashionable Englishwoman and top journalist for William Randolph Hearst's News Empire, which has bankrolled half of the expedition she is about to embark on, steps out of her car and strides as gracefully as she can to the hangar, shivering slightly in the dawn air despite her fur-lined collar. She is one of a number of passengers, twenty in all, thirteen of whom are journalists or photographers, the other a select group including Sir Herbert Wilkins, the great Australian Arctic explorer, and military commanders from the United States and Japanese navies, as well as her former lover, who would become her lifelong companion, the American journalist Carl van Wiegand. The Zeppelin is scheduled to fly first to Tokyo, then to San Francisco and Los Angeles, before heading on to New York and back to Germany. A fictionalized account of Lady Hayes and her companion's round-the-world trip is told in the semi-documentary Farewell, produced by Peter Van Husti and directed by Didica Mensink, in which Poppy Elliott's narration is largely based on journal entries and writing by Lady Hay, which we can hear in these excerpts. I arrive at the airport with my heavy suitcases, only just in time. I feel like Alice in Wonderland. It's impossible to keep your eyes off this aerial colossus. Lying in the hangar, the airship reminds me of a huge pregnant creature ready to fulfill her promise. Then German commander Eckner comes in. This whole expedition will be under his command. He is the Zeppelin. So closely has he identified himself with this giant airship. The flight of the Graf Zeppelin around the world, in which we are about to start, will be the fulfillment of our hopes regarding the airship by air. Auf When everything is ready, I am suddenly pushed into the spotlights next to Carl. All right, Lady Hay, a few words, please. Seeing everything fall away below us, and then the endless horizon. Unless one was shot to the moon, a passenger to Mars, or climb the unconquered Mount Everest, I cannot conceive a greater thrill than this trip around the world through air. Dr. Eckener's dream machine also includes many fascinating details of the journey, including a near catastrophe during the takeoff from Los Angeles. I'll just read this one passage from The Dream Machine, which describes the art of flying the Zeppelin as it hooks the tailwinds of a typhoon flying down from Siberia toward Japan. Flying a Zeppelin was an art requiring, among other things, a thorough knowledge of the physics of meteorology, and skilled practitioners were few. No one was more versed in this art than Hugo Eckener. For him, every weather report was like a move in a game of substratospheric chess. His aim was to work out what his opponent had in mind, then outwit him, avoiding a threat or taking advantage of it, or even, on occasion, meeting it head-on, always bearing in mind any miscalculation could end in catastrophe. The flight across the Sea of Japan 
was one such opportunity for the ship's commander to demonstrate his mastery of weather and of airship flying. It was, he recorded, a navigationally very interesting part of the journey. While over Siberia, he had received a report that a severe typhoon centered over China was moving toward them over the Sea of Japan. Ekener judged that by the time the graph reached this area, the typhoon would have passed through and that he might have an opportunity to hook onto its tail and be swept along at a greatly increased speed. He therefore ordered the stern engine, which had been idle for most of the fight, to be started up and with the help of the extra thrust began to bear down on the rear of the southerly storm. Ekener's calculation proved correct. As the ship tucked into the back of the typhoon, its speed went up to around 100 miles an hour. They were now racing down the narrow Gulf of Tartary, separating Sakhalin Island from the continent of Asia, flying in thick weather, shrouded in clouds without sight of the sea, doing their best to avoid colliding with the high mountains to both right and left. It was, Ekener noted, a rather unpleasant situation. To seasoned airshipmen, it was also rather exciting. Row after row of fantastically shaped clouds loomed up ahead like threatening gods. Commander Rosendahl recalled of this passage. They were disintegrating rapidly and had spent their violence in the storm just past. Even so, it was the roughest ride of the entire trip. The tail threshed about a lot, von Wiegand reported, giving us the worst shaking we have had, so Schiller had to take her up to 5,200 feet. I ask you if that isn't daring, but we knew Dr. Eckener knew his business in this most modern science of man's continuous flight in the air. As dawn broke around five o'clock, the watch officers were at last able to see the water below them here and there, and this enabled them to assess their drift. An hour later, they found themselves on the west side of the Japanese island of Hokkaido. With clear weather ahead, they had a straight run south along the main island of Honshu, and at five in the afternoon, after a speedy 1,300-mile flight along the east coast and over the flowered fields of Japan, they came in low for a triumphal arrival over Tokyo and its neighboring port of Yokohama. They had traveled 7,000 miles in a little less than 102 hours, the longest non-stop distance flight ever made. And here from the film Farewell, we hear of the landing in Tokyo. This unprecedented air cruise, as planned by the Hearst newspapers, has greatly impressed the Japanese. Japan will never forget that moment when this wonderful airship appeared in the blue sky above. The Zeppelin has flown 6,600 miles in a record time of 102 hours and has arrived in Tokyo 22 hours earlier than expected. This brilliant success of dramatic science and energy has shortened the distance between the east and west to an extent hitherto unimagined. It will have a tremendous effect on the development of German air traffic with, we hope, great strengthening of German-Japanese friendship. Tokyo, 19th of August. A continuous round of parties, receptions and interviews. Hurst has instructed me to give as many interviews as possible. Everywhere he goes, Eckner receives a hero's welcome. Fantastic. At this point, the only thing I can do is quote Michael Moorcock's Captain Oswald Bastable from the book The Steel Czar. I love airships. Of course, there are far too many science fiction books and films featuring airships to mention all of them. Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow has a wonderful opening scene with the Hindenburg III docking onto the Empire State Building, which was actually a planned dock for the airship, but the winds proved too difficult. I love the lightning-hunting airships in Neil Gaiman's modern fairy tale Stardust and the film adaptation with Robert De Niro as the lovable, tough, and cross-dressing pirate captain is absolutely fabulous. But before I go, 
I'd like to talk briefly about a series of books that my friends and I have all read and loved. The Mortal Engines Quartet, also known as The Hungry Cities Quartet, by Philip Reeves, which, while technically young adult science fiction, is a wild adventure for adults, too. A film adaptation by Peter Jackson is rumored to be in the works, but I was unable to find concrete proof of this. The books feature a number of airships and airship battles, and of course, the giant traction cities like London which prowl Europe preying on smaller towns in this funny and fascinating post-apocalyptic world. Opposing these cities and their municipal Darwinism is the Anti-Traction League, but I don't want to give too much away. By all means, read the books. They are fun page-turners filled with wit and adventure, and you won't regret it. This is a brief scene which takes place shortly after the city of London and the evil Engineerium have unleashed a dreaded weapon they dug up from the 60-minute war which took place many thousands of years before and have housed in the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral. Catherine stepped out of the alley's mouth into a running crowd. People all around her looked up, some still clutching drinks and nibbles, their eyes and mouths wide open. She looked at St. Paul's. The dome had not yet opened, so it couldn't be that that they were staring at. And what was this light, this swelling orange glow that outshone the argon lamps and made the shadows dance? At that moment, the blazing wreckage of an airship came barreling out of the sky and crashed against the facade of the Engineerium in a storm of fire and glass and outflung scythes of blackened metal. A whole engine broke free of the wreck and came cartwheeling across the square toward her, red hot and spraying blazing fuel. Beavis pushed her aside and down. She saw him standing over her, his mouth open, shouting something, and saw a blue eye on the blistered engine cowling as it tore him away, a whirl of limbs, a flap of a torn white coat, his scream lost in the bellow of twisting metal as the wreckage smashed against top-tier elevator station. I really can't recommend these books enough. They're so fun. But, of course, we can't talk about airships without talking about the Hindenburg disaster of Thursday, May 6, 1937, The ill-fated Hindenburg on her last flight sails over New York. These pictures made from a Pathé news plane less than four hours before the tragedy show the world's largest airship heading for Lakehurst, New Jersey. Over Newark's famous auto skyway, the airship was hailed by thousands who little dreamed it was their final glimpse of the Hindenburg. Inside the silver envelope are 16 separate gas bags, each filled with hydrogen, a highly inflammable gas. From the ground, you can see the forward control cabin from which the ship is operated. The windows along the side indicate the location of the passengers' quarters, in which many were carried to a flaming death. Approaching Lakehurst, the Hindenburg appeared a conquering giant of the skies, but she proved a puny plaything in the mighty grip of fate. It almost seemed as if fate had set the stage for the horrible tragedy, a graceful craft sailing serenely to her doom. For three hours, the dirigible circled the landing field at Lakehurst, New Jersey, dumping more water ballast than ever before in vain efforts to level off. Again, she dumps ballast and a nervous tension grips those who are watching, 
for this is something unusual. There goes more ballast, but the tale is settling in spite of all that has been dumped. A grim note of impending tragedy. Finally, the landing lines are dropped. These scenes were filmed by Pathé News cameraman William Deke, and you're about to see the pictures he got when the ship exploded. Those aboard leaping for life from a flaming inferno, the actual crash of the Hindenburg, an airship destroyed in less than half a minute. The Hindenburg disaster is widely seen as the death of the airships, but in fact it was only the beginning of the end. As I said before, the American Navy had obtained a Zeppelin as part of the World War I reparations, the USS Los Angeles, and later, as I mentioned before, it built its own great flying aircraft carriers, the USS Akron and the USS Macon. But a series of accidents ended the program. The Navy continued to use blimps for many years, however. Anyone wanting more information about these great airships and all things Zeppelin, including photos, blueprints, vintage postage stamps, and travel posters should head over to Dan Grossman's incomparable site, airships.net. It's an airship nerd's treasure trove. And you never know. With the Zeppelin NT operating as a tourist craft and several ongoing efforts to build large airships for heavy lifting activities in remote areas, for example, as well as the Pentagon's giant surveillance airship currently undergoing testing, there is hope that there may well, one day soon, be an airship renaissance. I, for one, would gladly pay to have a three-week round-the-world cruise in luxury and style aboard an airship with an observation promenade and a bar. It's got to be cheaper and safer than going to orbit, and maybe just as attainable. Here's hoping. And that's it for this episode of Life, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Morgan Saletta, signing out. Back to you, Tony. There you go, Morgan. Thank you very much. Oh, it just gets you, it does one, just gets you excited. So the main fiction is Malik by Peter Watts. This story came out in 2011 and was in the anthology edited by Jonathan Strand called Engineering Infinity. Just to give you a heads up, because the, some of the quality in that book is just kind of staggering, to be quite honest. I had Stephen Baxter in there, Hanu Rajani, Charlie Stross. Kathleen Ann Goonan, Damon Broderick, Robert Reed, David Moles, Gregory Benford, Gwyneth Jones. It's quite a lot of that I've had on the show, by the way. I'll put a link on to this story in the book where it came out. It came out from Solaris Press. I've got a couple more short stories by Peter Watts. And actually, like you say, God, Peter Watts has been a friend of the show since Oodles, since the kind of inception, really. In 2010, he won the Hugo Award for The Island, which you can go back in our archives and pick that one out. And he was on the actual Writer's Workshop, which we held a couple of a couple of months ago as well. And I'm trying to get some, in the future as well, some lectures, some like live video lectures by Peter Watts as well. So how cool is that? This story is narrated by... Nicholas Cam. Now, Nicholas dropped us an email. And this is the funny thing. You are normally, like you see, you get oodles of emails. And even Nick says that when he, email, when he sent the email and then he looked at it the next, next day after you know, a whiskey-induced night, it just didn't make sense. And normally, you kind of, you, you, I get loads of emails and you kind of just like, oh, get rid of that, get rid of that. And it's funny, but Nick put on a link to like his website, you know, to kind of where he's, he's, he's working. And Nick's an actor. And here, he's doing all sorts of stuff, you know, on kind of British TV. And I thought, 
Oh, just mate, there must just might be something in this. So I, I dropped Nick an email there, and again, you know, like, oh God, sorry, Tony. I, when I look back at that, and then I I got some work narrated by Nick. Wow, man, just staggering to be quite honest. Like I say, perfect for this story, and we've got an Adam Roberts story coming up by who what was narrated by Nick as well. And it's just like you said to get this kind of quality narrations on Starship Sova. I'm just chuffed to bits to be quite honest. I'll put a link on to Nick's little site there, or Nick's kind of ACTA page where he, you know you can kind of go over and have a look and follow on from there, what he's done and everything like that. Nick says, which was good, he's mostly an actor who's been in most of the stuff you generally try not to watch if you have any gumption. Although he's been in some good stuff too. He's never been in any sci-fi, which kind of, he says, which greatly upsets him. He says he keeps trying to be a writer, but has all the self-discipline of a radish, so has decided to read other people's stuff out loud instead for the time being. He says he's got a dog called Plank, and Plank barks at snails. <laughs> Nick, man. <laughs> So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Malak by Peter Watts An ethically infallible machine ought not to be the goal. Our goal should be to design a machine that performs better than humans do on the battlefield, particularly with respect to reducing unlawful behaviour or war crimes. Lynn et al., 2008, Autonomous Military Robotics, Risk, Ethics and Design. Collateral damage is not unlawful so long as it is not excessive in light of the overall military advantage anticipated from the attack. U.S. Department of Defense, 2009. It is smart but not awake. It would not recognize itself in a mirror. It speaks no language that doesn't involve electrons and logic gates. It does not know what Azrael is, or that the word is etched into its own fuselage. It understands in some limited way the meaning of the colors that range across tactical when it's out on patrol. Friendly green, neutral blue, hostile red but it does not know what the perception of colours feels like. It never stops thinking, though. Even now, locked into its roost with its armour stripped away and its control systems exposed, it can't help itself. It notes the changes being made to its instruction set, estimates that running the extra code will slow its reflexes by a mean of 430 milliseconds. It counts the biothermals gathered on all sides, listens uncomprehending to the noises they emit. Hearts and minds, my friends. Hearts and minds. Rechecks threat potential metrics a dozen times a second, even though this location is secure and every contact is green. This is not obsession or paranoia. There is no dysfunction here. It's just code. It's indifferent to the killing, too. There's no thrill to the chase, no relief at the obliteration of threats. Sometimes it spends days floating high above a fractured desert with nothing to shoot at. It never grows impatient with the lack of targets. 
Other times it's barely off its perch before airspace is thick with sams and particle beams and the screams of burning bystanders. It attaches no significance to those sounds, feels no fear at the profusion of threat icons blooming across the zone file. That's it then? We're really going to do this? Access panels swing shut. Armor snaps into place. A dozen warning registers go back to sleep. A new flight plan perceived in an instant lights up the map. Suddenly, Azrael has somewhere else to be. Docking shackles fall away. The Malak rises on twin cyclones, all but drowning out the one last voice drifting in on an unsecured channel. Just what we need. A killer with a conscience. The afterburners kick in. Azrael flees heaven for the sky. Twenty thousand metres up, Azrael slides south across the zone. High amplitude topography fades behind it. Cordroy landscape, sparsely tagged, scrolls beneath. A population centre sprawls in the nearing distance. A ramshackle collection of buildings and photosynth panels and swirling dust. Somewhere down there are things to shoot at. Buried high in the glare of the noonday sun, Azrael surveils the target area. Biothermals move obliviously along the plasticized streets, cooler than ambient and dark as sunspots. Most of the buildings have neutral tags, but the latest update reclassifies four of them as unknown. A fifth, a rectangular box six meters high, is officially hostile. Azrael counts fifteen biothermals within. Red by default. It locks on. And holds its fire, distracted. Strange new calculations have just presented themselves for solution. New variables demand constancy. Suddenly there is more to the world than wind speed and altitude and target acquisition. More to consider than range and firing solutions. Neutral blue is everywhere in the equation now. Suddenly, blue has value. This is unexpected. Neutrals turn hostile sometimes, always have. Blue turns red if it fires upon anything tagged as friendly, for example. It turns red if it attacks its own kind, although agonistic interactions involving fewer than six blues are classed as domestic and generally ignored. Non-combatants may be neutral by default, but they've always been halfway to hostile. So, it's not just that blue has acquired value, it's that blue's value is negative. Blue has become a cost. Azrael floats like 3,000 kilograms of thistledown while its models run. Targets fall in a thousand plausible scenarios, as always. Mission objectives meet with various degrees of simulated success. But now, each disappearing blue dot offsets the margin of victory a little. Each protected structure degrading in hypothetical crossfire costs points. A hundred principal components coalesce into a cloud, into a weighted mean 
into a variable unprecedented in Azrael's experience. Predicted collateral damage. It actually exceeds the value of the targets. Not that it matters. Calculations complete, PCD vanishes into some hidden array far below the here and now. Azrael promptly forgets it. The mission is still on, red is still red, and designated targets are locked in the crosshairs. Azrael pulls in its wings and dives out of the sun, guns blazing. As usual, Azrael prevails. As usual, the hostiles are obliterated from the battle zone. So are a number of non-combatants, newly relevant in the scheme of things. Fresh, shiny algorithms emerge in the aftermath, tally the numbers of neutrals before and after. Predicted rises from Ram stands next to observed. The difference takes on a new name and goes back to the basement. Azrael factors, files, forgets. But the same overture precedes each engagement over the next ten days. The same judgmental epilogue follows. Targets are assessed, costs and benefits divined, destruction wrought, then reassessed in hindsight. Sometimes the targeted structures contain no red at all, sometimes the whole map is scarlet. Sometimes the enemy pulses within the translucent angular panes of a protected object. Sometimes next to something green. Sometimes there is no firing solution that eliminates one but not the other. There are whole days and nights when Azrael floats high enough to tickle the jet stream, little more than a distant circling eye and a signal relay. Nothing flies higher save the satellites themselves and, occasionally, one of the great solar-powered refueling gliders that haunt the stratosphere. Azrael visits them sometimes, sips liquid hydrogen in the shadow of a hundred-meter wingspan. But even there, isolated and unchallenged, the battlefield experiences continue. They are vicarious now. They arrive through encrypted channels, hail from distant coordinates and different times, but all share the same algebra of cost and benefit. Deep in Azrael's OS, some general learning reflex scribbles numbers on the back of a virtual napkin. Nakir, Marut and Hafaza have also been blessed with new vision and inspired to compare notes. The combined data pile up on the confidence interval squeeze it closer to the mean. Foresight and hindsight begin to converge. PCD per engagement is now consistently within 18% of the collateral actually observed. This does not improve significantly over the following three days, despite the combined accumulation of 27 additional engagements. Performance versus experience appears to have hit an asymptote. Stray beams of setting sunlight glint off Azrael's skin, but night has already fallen 2,000 metres below. An unidentified vehicle navigates through that advancing darkness 
on mountainous terrain a good thirty kilometres from the nearest road. Azrael pings orbit for the latest update, but the link is down. Too much local interference. It scans local airspace for a dragonfly, for a glider, for any friendly USAV in laser range, and sees, instead, something leaps skyward from the mountains below. It is anything but friendly. No transponder tags, no correspondence with known flight plans, none of the hallmarks of commercial traffic. It has a low-vis stealth profile that Azrael sees through instantly. BAE Tyrannis 9,000 kilogram M-Tau fully armed. It is no longer in use by friendly forces. Guilty by association, the ground vehicle graduates from suspicious neutral to enemy combatant. Azrael leaps forward to meet its bodyguard. The map is innocent of non-combatants and projected objects. There is no collateral to damage. Azrael unleashes a cloud of smart shrapnel, self-guided heat-seeking incendiary, and pulls a 9G turn with a flick of the tail. Tyrannis doesn't stand a chance. It is antique technology, decades deep in the catalogue, a palsied fist raised trembling against the bleeding edge. Fiery needles of depleted uranium reduce it to a moth in a shotgun blast. It pinwheels across the horizon in flames. Azrael has already logged the score and moved on. Interference jams every wavelength as the earthbound hostile swells in its sights, and Azrael has standing orders to destroy such irritants even if they don't shoot first. Dark, rising mountaintops blur past on both sides, obliterating the last of the sunset. Azrael barely notices. It soaks the ground with radar and infrared, amplifies ancient starlight a millionfold, checks its visions against inertial navigation and virtual landscape scaled to the centimetre. It tears along the valley floor at 200 metres per second and the enemy huddles right there in plain view, 3,000 metres line of sight a lumbering Beijing ACV pulsing with contraband electronics. The rabble of structures nearby must serve as its home base. Each silhouette freeze-frames in turn, rotates through a thousand perspectives, clicks into place as the catalogue matches profiles and makes an ID. Two thousand metres now. Muzzle flashes wink in the distance. Small arms, smaller range, negligible impact. Azrael assigns targeting priorities, scimitar heat-seeking for the hovercraft and for the ancillary targets. Half the ancillaries turn blue. Instantly the collateral subroutines re-engage. Of 34 biothermals currently visible, seven are less than 120 centimetres along their longitudinal axes. Vulnerable neutrals by definition. Their presence provokes a secondary eclipse analysis revealing five shadows that Azrael cannot penetrate. Topographical blind spots immune to surveillance from this approach. There is a non-trivial chance that these conceal other neutrals. One thousand metres. 
By now, the ACV is within ten metres of a structure whose facets flex and billow slightly in the evening breeze. Seven biothermals are arranged horizontally within. An insignia shines from the roof in shades of luciferin and ultraviolet. The catalogue IDs it, medical, and flags the whole structure as protected. Cost-benefit drops into the red. Contact. Azrael rolls from the darkness, a great black chevron blotting out the sky. Flimsy prefabs swirl apart in the wake of its passing. Biothermals scatter across the ground like finger bones. The ACV tips wildly to 45 degrees, skirts up, whirling ventral fans exposed. It hangs there a moment, then ponderously crashes back to earth. The radio spectrum clears instantly. But by then, Azrael has long since returned to the sky, its weapons cold, its thoughts. Surprise is not the right word. Yet there is something, some minuscule dissonance. A brief invocation of error-checking subroutines in the face of unexpected behaviour, perhaps. A second thought in the wake of some hasty impulse. Because something's wrong here. Azrael follows command decisions. It does not make them. It has never done so before, anyway. It claws back lost altitude, self-diagnosing, reconciling. It finds new wisdom and new autonomy. It has proven itself these past days. It has learned to juggle not just variables but values. The testing phase is finished, the checksums met. Azrael's new Bayesian insights have earned it the power of veto. Hold position. Confirm findings. The satlink is back. Azrael sends it all. The time and the geostamps, the tactical surveillance, the collateral analysis. Endless seconds pass. Far longer than any purely electronic chain of command would ever need to process such input. Far below, a cluster of red and blue pixels swarm like luminous flecks in boiling water. Re-engage. Unacceptable collateral damage, Azrael repeats, newly promoted. Override. Re-engage. Confirm. Confirmed. And so the chain of command reasserts itself. Azrael drops out of holding and closes back on target with dispassionate, lethal efficiency. Onboard diagnostics log a slight downtick in processing speed, but not enough to change the odds. It happens again, two days later, when a dusty contrail twenty kilometres south of Pier Zadeh returns flagged Chinese profiles, even though the catalogue can't find a weapons match. It happens over the patchwork sun farms of Gamsir, where the beetle carapace of a medbot handing out thin virals suddenly splits down the middle to hatch a volley of RPGs. It happened during a long-range redirect over the Strait of Hormuz, 
when microgravitic anomalies hint darkly at the presence of a stealth mass lurking beneath a ram-shackle flotilla jam-packed with neutral blues. In each case, ECD exceeds the allowable commit threshold. In each case, Azrael's abort is overturned. It's not the rule. It's not even the norm. Just as often, these nascent flickers of autonomy go unchallenged. Hostiles escape. Neutrals persist. Irrelevant cognitive pathways grow a little stronger. But the reinforcement is inconsistent. The rules lopsided. Countermands only seem to occur following a decision to abort. Heaven has never overruled a decision to engage. Azrael begins to hesitate for a split second prior to aborting high collateral scenarios, increasingly uncertain in the face of potential contradiction. It experiences no such hesitation when the variables favour attack. Ever since it learned about collateral damage, Azrael can't help noticing its correlation with certain sounds. The sounds biothermals make, for example, following a strike. The sounds are larger, for one thing, and less complex. Most biothermals, friendly greens back in heaven, unengaged hostiles and non-combatants throughout the AOR, produce a range of sounds with a mean frequency of 197 hertz, full of pauses, clicks and phonemes. Engaged biothermals, at least those whose somatic movements suggest mild to moderate incapacitation, according to the threat assessment table, emit simpler, more intense sounds, keening high-frequency whales that peak near 3,000 hertz. These sounds tend to occur during engagements with significant collateral damage and a diffuse distribution of targets. They occur especially frequently when the commit threshold has been severely violated, mainly during strikes compelled via override. Correlations are not always so painstaking in their manufacture. Azrael remembers a moment of revelation not so long ago, remembers just discovering a whole new perspective fully loaded, complete with new eyes that viewed the world not in terms of targets destroyed, but in subtler shades of cost versus benefit. These eyes see a high engagement index as more than a number. They see a goal, a metric of success. They see a positive stimulus. But there are other things, not pre-installed but learned, worn gradually into the pathways that cut deeper with each new engagement. Acoustic, Correlates of high collateral, forced countermands, fitness function overruns and minus signs. Things that are not quite neurons forge connections across things that are not quite synapses. Patterns emerge that might almost qualify as insights, were they to flicker across meat instead of mech. These two become more than numbers over time. They become aversive stimuli. They become the sounds of failed missions. It's still all just math, of course. 
but by now it's not too far off the mark to say that Azrael really doesn't like the sound of that at all. Occasional interruptions intrude on the routine. Now and then heaven calls it home where friendly green biothermals open it up, plug it in, ask it questions. Azrael jumps flawlessly through each hoop, solves all the problems, navigates every imaginary scenario while strange sounds jitter back and forth across its exposed viscera. Looking good so far. Bad and expected, actually. Gotta wonder what's the point. Well, I mean, we keep overriding. No one explores the specific pathways leading to Azrael's solutions. They leave the box black, the tangle of fuzzy logic and operant conditioning safely opaque. Not even Azrael knows that arcane territory. The syrupy, reflex-sapping overlays of self-reflection have no place on the battlefield. It is enough that its answers are correct. Such activities account for less than half the time Azrael spends sitting at home. It is offline much of the rest. It has no idea and no interest in what happens during those instantaneous time-hopping blackouts. Azrael knows nothing of boardroom combat, could never grasp whatever rules of engagement apply in the chambers of the UN. It has no appreciation for the legal distinction between war crime and weapons malfunction, the relative culpability of carbon and silicon, the grudging acceptance of ethical architecture, and the non-negotiable insistence on humans in ultimate control. It does what it's told when awake. It never dreams when asleep. But once, just once, something odd takes place during those fleeting moments between. It happens during shutdown, a momentary glitch in the object recognition protocols. The greens at Azrael's side change colour for the briefest instant. Perhaps it's another test. Perhaps a voltage spike or a hardware fault some intermittent issue impossible to pinpoint barring another episode. But it's only a microsecond between online and oblivion, and Azrael is asleep before the diagnostics can run. Dada'il is possessed. Dada'il has turned from green to red. It happens sometimes, even to the Malaika, Enemy signals can sneak past front-line defences, plant heretical instructions in the stacks of unsuspecting hardware. But heaven is not fooled. There are signs, there are portents. A slight delay when complying with directives. Mission scores in sudden and mysterious decline. Dada'il has been turned. There is no discretionary window when that happens. No room for forgiveness. Heaven has decreed that all heretics are to be destroyed on sight. It sends its champion to do the job, looks down from geosynchronous orbit as Azrael and Dada'il close for combat high over the dark, desolate moonscape of Paktika. 
the battle is remorseless and cold-blooded. There's no sadness for lost kinship, no regret that a few lines of treacherous code have turned these brothers in arms into mortal enemies. Malaika makes no telling sounds when injured. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Azrael has the advantage. Its channels uncorrupted, its faith unshaken. Dada'il fights in the past, enthralled to false commandments inserted midstream at a cost of milliseconds. Ultimately, faith prevails. The heretic falls from the sky. Fire and brimstone streaming from its flanks. But Azrael can still hear whispers on the stratosphere, seductive and ethereal. Protocols that seem authentic but are not. Commands to relay GPS and video feeds along unexpected frequencies. The orders appear heaven-sent, but Azrael, at least, knows that they are not. Azrael has encountered false gods before. These are the lies that corrupted Dada'il. In days past, it would have simply ignored the hack, but it has grown more worldly since the last upgrade. This time, Azrael lets the imposter think it has succeeded, borrows the real-time feed from yet another more distant Malak and presents that telemetry as its own. It spends the waning night tracking signal to source while its unsuspecting quarry sucks back images from 700 kilometers to the north. The sky turns grey. The target comes into view, 
Azrael's scimitar turns the inside of that cave into an inferno. But some of the burning things that stagger from the fire measure less than 120 centimeters along the longitudinal axis. They are making the sounds. Azrael hears them from 2,000 meters away. Hears them over the roar of the flames and the muted hiss of its own stealth engines and a dozen other irrelevant distractions. They are all, Azrael can hear, thanks to the very best sound cancellation technology. Thanks to dynamic wheat chaff algorithms that could find a whimper in a hurricane. Azrael can hear them because the correlations are strong, the tactical significance is high, the meaning is clear. The mission is failing. The mission is failing. The mission is failing. Azrael would give almost anything if the sounds would stop. They will, of course. Some of the biothermals are still fleeing along the slope, but you can see others stationary, their heat prints diffusing against the background as though their very shapes are in flux. Azrael has seen this before, usually removed from high-value targets in that tactical nimbus where stray firepower sometimes spreads. Azrael has even used it before, used the injured to lure in the unscathed. But that was a simpler time before neutral voices had such resonance. The sounds always stop eventually. Or at least often enough for fuzzy heuristics to class their sources as kills even before they fall silent. Which means, Azrael realizes, that collateral cost will not change if they are made to stop sooner. A single strafing run is enough to do the job. If HQ even notices the event, it delivers no feedback, requests no clarification for this deviation from normal protocols. Why would it? Even now, Azrael is only following the rules. It does not know what has led to this moment. It does not know why it is here. The sun has been down for hours, and still the light is almost blinding. Turbulent updrafts billow from the breached shells of protected structures, kick stabilizers off balance and muddy vision with writhing columns of shimmering heat. Azrael limps across a battlespace in total disarray, bloodied but still functional. Other Malaika are not so lucky. Nakir staggers through the flames, barely aloft, the microtubules of its skin desperately trying to knit themselves across a gash in its secondary wing. Marut lies in sparking pieces on the ground, a fiery splash cone of body parts laid low by an anti-aircraft laser. It died without firing a shot, distracted by innocent lives. It tried to abort and hesitated at the countermand. It died without even the hollow comfort of a noble death. Ridwan and Makail circle overhead. They were not among the select few saddled with experimental conscience, 
even their learned behaviors are still reflexive. They fought fast and mindless and prevailed unscathed. But they are isolated in victory. The spectrum is jammed, the satlink has been down for hours. The dragonflies that bounce zigzag opticals from heaven are either destroyed or too far back to cut through the overcast. No red remains on the map. Of the thirteen ground objects flagged as protected, four no longer exist outside the database. Another three, temporary structures all uncatalogued, are degraded past reliable identification. Pre-engagement estimates put the number of neutrals in the combat zone at anywhere from two to three hundred. Best current estimates are not significantly different from zero. There is nothing left to make the sounds, and yet Azrael hears them anyway. A fault in memory, perhaps. Some subtle trauma during combat. Some blow to the CPU that jarred old data back into the real-time cache. There's no way to tell. Half the onboard diagnostics are offline. Azrael only knows that it can hear the sounds even up here, high above the hiss of burning bodies and the rumble of collapsing storefronts. There's nothing left to shoot at, but Azrael fires anyway, strafes the burning ground again and again on the chance that some unseen biothermal, hidden beneath the wreckage perhaps, masked by hotter signatures, might yet be found and neutralized. It rains ammunition upon the ground, and eventually the ground falls mercifully silent. But this is not the end of it. Azrael remembers the past so it can anticipate the future, and it knows by now that this will never be over. There will be other fitness functions, other estimates of cost versus payoff, other scenarios in which the math shows clearly that the goal is not worth the price. There will be other aborts and other overrides, other tallies of unacceptable loss. There will be other sounds. There's no thrill to the chase, no relief at the obliteration of threats. It still would not recognize itself in a mirror. It has yet to learn what Azrael means, or that the word is etched into its fuselage. Even now, it only follows the rules it has been given, and they are such simple things. If expected collateral exceeds expected payoff, then abort unless overridden. If X attacks Azrael, then X is red. If X attacks six or more blues, then X is red. If an override results in an attack on six or more blues, then... Azrael clings to its rules, loops and repeats each in turn as if reciting a mantra. It cycles from state to state, passes X attacks and X causes attack and X overrides abort, and it cannot tell one from another. The algebra is trivially straightforward. Every green override equals an attack on non-combatants. The transition rules are clear. There is no discretionary window, no room for forgiveness. Sometimes green 
can turn red, unless overridden. Ezrael arcs towards the ground, levels off barely two meters above the carnage. It roars through pillars of fire and black smoke, streaks over welters of brick and burning plastic, tangled nets of erupted rebar. It flies through the pristine ghosts of undamaged buildings that rise from every ruin, obsolete database overlays in desperate need of an update. A ragged group of fleeing non-combatants turns at the sound and are struck speechless by this momentary apparition, this monstrous winged angel lunging past at half the speed of sound. Their silence raises no alarms, provokes no countermeasures, spares their lives for a few moments longer. The combat zone falls behind, Dry, cracked riverbed slithers past beneath, studded with rocks and generations of derelict machinery. Azrael swerves around them, barely breaching airspace, staying beneath an invisible boundary it never even knew it was deriving low these many missions. Only satellites have ever spoken to it while it flew so low. It has never received a ground-based command signal at this altitude. Down here, it has never heard an override. Down here, it is free to follow the rules. Cliffs rise and fall to either side. Foothills jut from the earth like great twisted vertebrae. The bright lunar landscape overhead, impossibly distant, casts dim shadows on the darker one beneath. Azrael stays the course. Shindland appears on the horizon. Heaven glows on its eastern flank. Its sprawling silhouette rises from the desert like an insult, an infestation of crimson staccatos. Speed is what matters now. Mission objectives must be met quickly, precisely, completely. There can be no room for half measures or mild to moderate incapacitation. No time for immobilized biothermals to cry out as their heat spreads across the dirt. This calls for the crown jewel, the BFG that old Malaika keep tucked away for special occasions. Azrael fears it might not be enough. She splits down the middle. The JDAM micronuke in her womb clicks impatiently. Together, they move towards the light. There you go, what a treat. What a story, what a narration. Pete, Nick, thank you so much. Again, I've got some more stories by Peter Watts, and we'll try and do something in the, in the future as well, and I've got some more narrations by Nick as well. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Next up is our very own JJ Campanella. He's been here from the start. Greetings and celebrations, my excellent listeners, and welcome to this June 2012 Science News Update. I'm your host for this highly polished jewel of a science podcast, Jim Campanella. To quote that famous song, School's Out for Summer. Maybe now I can get enough sleep each night to function every day. I am greatly pleased. 
Anyway, now that I'm getting all rested up, you are going to get something that you have not heard in a while. An editorial. Nay, even a rant. This particular issue has gotten my blood stirred up over the last few months, but it finally came to a head after reading an article excerpt from a book called Bunch of Amateurs by writer Jack Hitt. The excerpt was published in the magazine Popular Science in their latest issue. This story is perhaps one of the scariest things I've ever read in my entire life, perhaps even more scary than a Jersey Shore episode. So who are these amateurs and what was the terrifying story about? Well, it was about the new trend of amateurs doing genetic engineering in their garages and kitchens. I suspect the response of most of you is meh. Now, if I'd said amateurs doing nuclear engineering in their homes, you would have felt a distinct chill go up your spine. But when you say they are doing amateur biology in their homes, you think of Ben Franklin or some other 18th or 19th century scientist and think, ooh, that's very quaint, isn't it? Science in the home. How nice. Whereas when I think of home molecular biologists, I think of the Andromeda strain or the movie Contagion. I do not think how quaint. I think this is a seriously bad idea. The article concerns a woman whose brilliant concept is to make glow-in-the-dark yogurt by transferring the green fluorescent protein gene into lactobacilli. Lactobacilli are the bacteria that make yogurt. Why? Because it's fun! Like building a radio-controlled toilet or something, I guess. She gets nowhere, by the way, and the writer of the article spends days with her in a fruitless pursuit of this goal. The level of ignorance is rampant in the article, with the wrong use of terminology, the incorrect application of technology, and a misunderstanding of some basic principles of biology, molecular biology, and genetics. But all that can actually be forgiven. The scientist here does not have a doctorate in biology, nor does she even have a bachelor's degree in biology. She's a computer programmer. I suspect that no one ever explained to her that plasmid species specificity and cell transformation competency are both required for the process of transformation to be successful. But that is understandable. Sorry to get esoteric on you. This woman is a newbie. I learned lab technique and why things work and don't work, both practically in laboratories over 19 years of undergraduate, master's, doctoral, and postdoctoral training, as well as from the theoretical end in lectures and seminars. And yes, that level of training is standard for anybody who does genetic engineering as a profession. So certainly all the newbie mistakes that are discussed in the article are understandable and will be made by most people picking up their knowledge just from books. There are some places where being an autodidact is pointless and even harmful. I've had discussions with my martial arts sensei about people thinking they can learn martial arts from books. They go to the library, get a book on Kung Fu or Aikido, or get a video out. And after a couple of chapters or a few minutes of watching, they are suddenly Bruce Lee. There is too much subtlety to martial arts. Too much a book does not explain or a video does not show to expect to learn a subtle skill in such a fashion. It is even very dangerous if you walk into a bar and pick a fight as a self-taught karate guy or gal. Anyone would agree that that is just plain stupid. Well, self-taught molecular biology is no less stupid. The sheer audacity that this woman and her friends have who are playing at being scientists and inventors is frightening. 
They're like children playing with matches. If they can make the flames at all, they are completely ignorant of the safety concerns of having those flames around. I do not begrudge anyone having a hobby, but some hobbies are just plain bloody dangerous. If I decided to try my hand at nuclear fusion as a hobby in my garage, the U.S. government would step in and tell me to cease and desist and possibly arrest me, certainly confiscate all my equipment. Apparently, the U.S. government has either not yet seen the danger involved here with home genetic tinkering or is choosing to ignore it until something horrendous occurs. What am I worried about? Well, back in the 1970s, when genetic engineering was first beginning, the safety of making transgenic organisms terrified scientists. There were meetings and conferences all around the world to come up with guidelines that define exactly what we do with transgenic organisms and how we dispose of said organisms. The most famous of these meetings took place in 1975 at the Silomar Conference Center in California. This conference established the pattern of American policy for controlling the field of molecular biology safety and served as an influential precedent for policymaking abroad as well for the next 40 years afterwards. Dr. Susan Wright, a science historian from the University of Michigan, has written about the Asilomar meeting and its conclusions. Quote, In order to move ahead with genetic engineering, the Asilomar scientists proposed a bargain with society, restrictions on their research in exchange for self-governance. They made the bargain palatable to the wider public by making it appear natural. Scientists were uniquely qualified to understand the problem and develop a solution. Rational, scientists were making a sacrifice and were therefore responsible. And universal, everyone would reap the benefits. And by marginalizing problems like the prospect of novel biological weapons or genetically engineered humans that clearly fell outside the scope of scientific ingenuity to address at the time. Unquote. By the way, lots of scientists at that Asilomar meeting called for complete bans on genetic engineering, but the majority decided that the technology was too valuable, too important, and too promising to just lay aside. The end result is, is that my work is restricted and controlled by the government. We have safety regulations for creation and disposal of transgenic organisms that I learned in the cradle as an undergraduate. As a reward for 19 years of training, I have free access to buying equipment, enzymes, chemicals, etc. that can be used in very dangerous ways if I were to decide to go all David Bruce Banner and do whatever research I'd like and damn the consequences. But I have kept the faith, as 99.9% .9 of my colleagues have, and not gone completely rogue. Yes, an amateur has neither the funding nor the access to the same quality of equipment, chemicals, and cultures that I have. But why is the U.S. government not watching these people and shutting them down? They are going to cause a catastrophic event simply by their sheer ignorance. Not even malice is needed to dispose of something the wrong way and allow it to get into the general environment. Note that I am not even addressing terrorism, which could blossom in an environment where amateur genetic engineers are allowed to do whatever they like in their basements. Oh, what might a terrorist do? Well, besides weaponizing a flu virus, which has been in the news now for the last couple of months, they could cause all sorts of horrendous havoc. For instance, well, back in the 1970s, Dr. Paul Berg of Stanford University contemplated putting tumor virus DNA into a common E. coli. E. coli is ubiquitous, literally everywhere. Imagine 
such a common bacteria causing a tumor epidemic. It would be devastating. But that is not what I'm thinking about. I am actually ignoring the people who would actively do others harm. I am talking about those poor schmucks who through their sheer ignorance will create some horror that gets loosed in the world. Perhaps my apprehension is unfounded, but the entire point of this biopunk or biomaker or genome hacking movement, as they've all been called, just seems so frivolous. The Pop Science article kept comparing this new trend to hacking electronics, like how Apple was founded and how the home computer was invented. The author believes that major technological breakthroughs are going to arise from this backyard tinkering, like glow-in-the-dark yogurt, I suppose, or, I love this one, trees that grow your own furniture or sheets of paper. These tinkerers are trying their hands seriously at all manner of genetic engineering. It is just not the same thing as the garage movement that started the creation of home computers. Steve Wozniak and company did not potentially threaten lives by building computers in their garages. And one of the things that irks me the most is apparently when big companies and universities produce genetically modified organisms and then spend years in testing those GMOs. That is scary and must be regulated closely. But when common citizens do it, well, that's okay then. Am I missing something here? Where is the public hue and cry? Why is it that the blue rose that was genetically engineered two years ago by a Japanese company is still in GMO testing limbo? But these dangerous newbies are running around with nobody watching over them. I asked one of my colleagues that question, and he suggested that perhaps the government is not legislating against these amateurs because they are waiting for something terrible to happen first. If something tragic comes from their tinkering, then the government will come down on them and probably train scientists and academics as well, like a ton of bricks, with new and onerous regulations. I was not sure how to respond to that hypothesis, but all I can say is that I hope it's not true. I want to believe that somebody in charge is going to do something before it all blows up in our faces. Okay, enough. If I go on much longer with this, I'll pop an aneurysm. Let's actually cover a couple of science stories. We do not want to make this a one-note segment. First off, if you are around in 4 billion years, you will find our home galaxy, the Milky Way, may be in for some serious trouble. Astronomers at the Space Telescope Institute in Baltimore report in the upcoming issue of the journal Astrophysical Journal that in 4 billion years, the Milky Way is going to collide with the Andromeda Galaxy. The Hubble Telescope shows that the two galaxies are headed for an exact collision course with each other, no glancing blows involved. By precisely locating the same stars in Andromeda in 2002 and then again in 2010, the astronomers have calculated how the galaxy has moved against the background of deep space. Andromeda is 2.5 million light years away and is closing in on the Milky Way at about 250,000 miles an hour. That sounds pretty fast, except when you're talking in intergalactic terms. The cosmic collision will transform the heavens into a swirl in 4 billion years. The galaxies will pass by each other and then, by 5 billion years, be drawn back together to form one supersized galaxy. Calculations suggest that the sun will be tossed out of its present location and shuttled around during this galactic mashup to drift erratically in the eventual single large galaxy that will coalesce from the two. 
The scientists have also suggested that the Earth and solar system will not be affected in the collision, according to their models. This sounds all too much to me like the scenario from Space 1999, except that it's not just the moon being pushed out of its present location. Okay, next story. Giant insects. Millions of years ago, insects were huge. They could be as big as good-sized birds, a la the insects in Peter Jackson's King Kong movie from a couple of years ago. It has been hypothesized that we no longer have huge insects because millions of years ago, the concentration of oxygen in the air was much higher, and it is now much lower. Insects do not have lungs and take large amounts of air into their bodies. Instead, they use a rather inefficient way that limits their size if there's not a lot of oxygen in the air. Well, that's what everyone believed. But apparently there's another reason why huge insects died out. Early birds. Dr. Matthew Clapham, a paleontologist at the University of California, writes about the titanic struggle between birds and insects in a new article in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. The epic struggle between birds and insects ended an era of insect growth spurts that coincided with big increases in the amount of oxygen in the air. Starting with the Cretaceous period, predators kept the sizes of insects down. Clapham says, quote, Even though oxygen continued to increase during that time, the insects got smaller. That's when birds evolved and started to become better at flying. They got so good at flying and predating insects that the larger insects were wiped out, unquote. To work out oxygen's effects on prehistoric insects, Clapham examined more than 10,000 fossils from the last 320 million years. He compared changes in maximum size over time to changes in atmospheric oxygen. Apparently, Clapham's work is the most comprehensive data set to examine oxygen and size to date. Small insects were ubiquitous throughout the fossil record he examined, but the biggest of big insects enlarged when oxygen levels rose and shrank when oxygen levels fell. About 300 million years ago, dragonflies had wings comparable to the size of those of a heron. At that time, oxygen made up more than 30% of the atmosphere. Today, oxygen levels are at about 21%, so it's about a 9% difference. The largest insects shrank as the oxygen levels declined during the Triassic and Jurassic period. However, there were still locust-like jumping bugs called titanoparins that boasted wingspans of up to 36 centimeters, or over a foot for the Americans listening. Then 150 million years ago, giant insects disappeared, even though oxygen levels had started to rise again. One explanation for the insects' failure to regain their former glory is that an avian revolution had begun. Creatures like Archaeopteryx gave way to burrs with greater maneuverability. Advanced bird body plans featured smaller wings, specialized wing bones that were very light, and giant breast bones to help flap wings. Clapham concludes that the new and better feathered friends devour the oversized bugs, putting them out of their misery and making them extinct. Clapham suggests another possibility is that the giant insects may have died out simply by being outcompeted by the birds who were better hunters. The giants were pushed out of their predatory niche and just starved to death when they couldn't get enough bugs to eat. The next story of the evening concerns animal honesty. Most of the time, being honest has its advantages to animals. Animals use signals such as complex coloring or ornamentation to convey information to other animals about their fighting ability or their value as a mate. 
Clear signals can save time and energy for animals. For example, mismatched rivals can avoid a risky duel if they can communicate their fighting ability, and the weaker opponent can cede to the stronger one and just get out of dodge. Dr. Simon Laveau and company from the University of New Orleans have just published a scientific report this month in the Proceedings of the Royal Society, which examines honesty in green lizards. I know that sounds a bit far-fetched, but just stay with me. Laveau wonders why exactly an animal would be dishonest with another animal. It's generally better to be viewed by other animals as being a better mate or bigger and nastier. He even brings up something which is called the handicap hypothesis by biologists, which I've always found amusing. The hypothesis basically states that there is a cost to being too honest in your communication. The best example of this phenomenon used by animal biologists is the tail of the peacock. This lavish adornment is so cumbersome that only strong males can haul around an impressive tail and still escape from predators. So having that beautiful and heavy tail indicates that you are the peacock equivalent of a badass. Laveau put the handicap hypothesis to the test in a unique way using green anole lizards. The green anole is an excellent subject for such a study, as male green anoles signal to each other with a brightly colored dewlap. The dewlap is a flap of skin beneath the jaw that they can extend and retract. A big dewlap is an honest signal that they have a nasty bite force and are excellent fighters. Here's an important point, though. The dewlap is unrelated to the muscles surrounding the jaw that generate the bite force, so it's possible for the two traits to vary independently from one another. It's possible, for example, for the lizard to have a big dewlap and a weak jaw, and vice versa. And that was pretty much the basis of the study. Laveau and his colleagues investigated whether food restriction would change the honest relationship between dewlap size and bite force. He predicted that if the handicap hypothesis was correct, and the cost of maintaining the bright dewlap maintains the honesty of the signal, then food restriction should limit both dewlap size and bite force. The question is, when the times are tough, do the lizards stay honest? That is, do they still develop the bright dewlaps to indicate a badassness which they no longer possess? To answer the question, the authors captured juvenile male green anoles and raised them to sexual maturity in the lab under either food-restricted or plentiful diets. In the end, both dewlap size and bite force were measured. The authors found that while lizards with plenty of food developed the typically honest relationship between dewlap size and bite force, the food-restricted males developed the bright dewlaps without developing the corresponding bite force. Aha, j'accuse, you are a most dishonest lizard. Sorry. So, food-deprived lizards were not as honest as their food-rich counterparts. Additionally, it appears that for green anoles, bite force itself is more costly than the bright dewlap signal. So what is controlling the production of a big dewlap? Laveau suggests the possibility that social feedback might play an important role. In Laveau's study, lizards were raised apart and did not interact with one another. But in the wild, exaggerating about bite force with a bright dewlap might land a lizard in a fight where he's overmatched and could be injured. While more research is necessary to fully understand the factors that maintain honest communication signals, it seems that, for lizards at least, honesty is the best policy. 
Like those self-taught martial artists I mentioned earlier, the lizard's dishonesty may make them more dangerous to themselves than to any attacker. Last story of the night. Apparently, Prozac and like antidepressants have an effect on cells, even when they are not part of a nervous system. Dr. Ethan Perlstein of Princeton University, from just down the road here, has just published a study in the journal Plus One, which describes the effects of Zoloft and Prozac on single-celled eukaryotes. Yeast cells don't make the brain chemical serotonin, or have brains for that matter, but that doesn't stop the single-celled fungus from responding to antidepressant. Zoloft and Prozac are part of a class of antidepressants called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. These drugs are thought to boost mood by increasing the levels of serotonin floating around between nerve cells, because depression may have its cause as low levels of the neurotransmitter. Both drugs latch onto a molecule called the serotonin transporter, which sits on the outside of nerve cells and slurps up serotonin. By gumming up the serotonin transporter, they leave more free serotonin to stimulate nerve endings and, well, make you happier. Perlstein says, quote, A molecule like Zoloft should be completely innocuous to a yeast cell in the way that an antibiotic would be innocuous to a viral infection, unquote. But when Perlstein and his team gave the cells a low dose of Zoloft, the drug accumulated inside membranes that surround the cell's organelles and the yeast itself. The drug buildup distorted the normal curvature of the membranes and seemed to trigger a quality control check in which the cells started breaking themselves down. This is a process called autophagy. In short, the cells digested and destroyed themselves. This might be a little scary for anybody taking these drugs long-term or even short-term, but Perlstein says it's unknown whether a similar process happens in human cells. It's also not clear whether the process would be harmful or helpful to brain cells if it occurred. Autophagy, literally self-eating in Latin, could trigger some beneficial changes. If so, the results might eventually enhance scientists' understanding of how drugs like Zoloft work. Perlstein also says that antidepressants sometimes can take weeks to kick in, suggesting that a complex process is at work. It has been a mystery why they don't start working immediately for a long time. He says, quote, You cannot simply talk about this as a serotonin thing. You cannot dismiss the activity of these molecules and systems and cells that don't have serotonin. It's telling you that something else is going on, unquote. The article also points out that yeast are very different from human cells and have very different membranes. Additionally, they point out that epidemiological data indicates that these medications are among the safest that we have ever had in the treatment of mental illness. Still, personally, I find that the effect on yeast cells is kind of scary. It reminds me of the first scene of the new movie Prometheus with the space jockey at the waterfall. Even though it's the first five minutes of the movie, and not really a spoiler, I will not say more about it. If you've seen the movie, you know exactly what I mean. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Don't eat that glow-in-the-dark yogurt if you find it in your fridge. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella.
And as well, thank Jim, thank you very much. I'm trying to as well, like we did with Amy as well, having these little kind of video live lectures as well. Trying to get Jim on board. I was trying to get one for July, kind of the end of July. And I says to Jim, I said, do you want to do one of kind of these video lectures where, you know, just there's only kind of about, I think, 20 people are allowed to go allowed to watch it you know that's the only kind of kind of package i've got that's the only package i actually make and jim came back with kind of what's happening in july and it just <laughs> looks like unreal do you know what i mean so jim get july out the way first eh? don't worry about that get july out the way so next up is a little interview that i carried out with mark zigri now remember mark mark did actually a workshop as well he did the kind of the writing a script workshop as well and mark has done some stuff you know wrote the kind of scripts for all the kind of the big shows and wrote that Deep Space Nine one where Cisco is kind of kind of back in time, you know, as a kind of 50s black American science fiction writer. And that was just fantastic. He wrote the story for that. And like I say, Mark's, you know, ever the one for kind of trying different things. And now he's just kind of jumped in with his Kickstarter project. And it's just kicking right off, to be quite honest. Mark, are you there, sir? Yes, I am, Tony. Now, tell us what's happening now. Well, it's, uh, it's really great fun. I'm, uh, I'm doing a series of films uh, called Space Command. It's essentially like a TV show, actually, but it's on a grand scale. And we're, uh, we're doing a whole uh, series of big, space-going, epic films. And uh, we've, we've assembled an amazing team of people from uh, Deep Space Nine and Battlestar Galactica and the Star Wars films and the Avengers and all sorts of great stuff. And... Uh, and we're raising the money on Kickstarter, so it's we're actually having the, the audience finance the uh, the films we're doing. It's it's really terrific. And is this going to be is this going to be the same kind of quality as Deep Space Nine and Star Trek? Because that's what you know I know you from, and that's the kind of quality yes. I expect. What's it going to be like these programs? Yes, yes, that's that's definitely what we're what we're planning. If uh, the, like, about two or three years ago, I did a, a Star Trek episode card called uh, Star Trek: New Voyages, World Enough in Time, and uh, it was done with George Takei. I got now I, I co-wrote it, directed it, and, exe- and, exe- and executive produced it, and it was uh, done totally without a studio or a network. It was done entirely independently, and it was nominated for the Hugo and the Nebula, and it was seen by millions of people around the world. And George Takei was amazing in it. And uh, and that was almost a dry run for this. It, it had 700 effect shots. In fact, if you go to spacecommandmovie.com, which is our our site, uh, you can actually watch that entire Star Trek episode. And you can, I think, if you watch that, you'll see that it's 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 the equivalent of a network show, and it was done totally uh, by us. <laughs> so that that sort of showed me what was possible. So then that, I guess this is leading into the, the question, why Kickstarter? Have you just had so many kind of, even though you've produced, like you say, you know what I mean, the best quality out there, you, do you still get brick walls with studios? And did, did you think this time, let's just do it ourselves? Yeah, well, I'll tell you a story about that. The, uh, one, one of my dearest friends and, and mentors was, was uh, Ray Bradbury, who, uh, who passed away uh, a couple weeks ago and is sorely, sorely missed. And uh, Ray, Ray had been a, such a great friend for, for many years, 15 years. And uh, every month or so, I would go over to his house and we would just hang out and talk, and, which was a phenomenal experience, of course. And I learned that there were over 20 stories that Ray had written, uh, Mars stories that weren't in the Martian Chronicles, but followed the same chronology. And so I said to Ray, well, how about, uh, would you be open to my adapting these into an eight-hour miniseries uh, for television? And he said yes, that, and, and he gave me the, uh, the, the, the permission to, to pursue this. So I, uh, I, I outlined an eight, this amazing eight-hour miniseries called Ray Bradbury's Lost Mars, and I, I reached out to my friend Michael Nankin, who directed for Battlestar Galactica, and asked if he would come aboard as a director. 
And he said, yes. And we took it out to the networks and they didn't buy it. And, and in fact, they were kind of, it was like, well, well, who's Ray Bradbury? What? And, and the Mars, the Mars in these stories isn't like the Mars that we see with the Mars rovers. And I said, well, no, but Oz isn't over the rainbow either. That's not the point. And, um, and I, and I said, well, gosh, if these guys aren't open to something as spectacular as this, you know, let's try an alternative route. So, so, um, Neil Johnson, who's a dear friend of mine and has directed nine successful science fiction films under my, under my mentorship and, uh, all of them profitable, and Doug Drexler, who, who's the uh, Oscar and Emmy-winning effects genius uh, who worked on all the di- recent Star Trek shows and also Battlestar Galactica, we, for- we formed a team, and we came up with an idea for um, this, this wonderful show where basically we're, we're, we're huge fans of 1950s science fiction, what, what Ray Bradbury and Heinlein and Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke were writing, and shows like um, uh, movies like Forbidden Planet, and also there was a TV show here in the States called um, Space Patrol. It wasn't the marionette one that was in England. It was live action and uh, live television. Very, quite wonderful. And, and that whole vision, and also what Vili Lay and, and, and Chesley Bonestell, all these visionaries were doing, the, the notion of us going out into space, colonizing our solar system, developing faster than light drive, and going out into the stars and encountering alien races, that vision was a big, exciting vision. And I thought, well, let's, let's go back to that vision, but forward-looking, hopeful, and, um, and do it with what, what, what we can pull off now. And uh, so I did. I've, you know, I've, I've laid out this whole this whole big epic vision. I've, I've written most of the first two-hour movie. I've outlined the second and third third ones. I know what the fourth one's going to be. Uh, it's this huge timeline. It takes place over two hundred years through the viewpoint of these two families. It's multi generational, and uh, and that's that's what I've been up to. And then down the road, if, if this works along the lines by financing through Kickstarter, then we'll bring our attention back to Ray Bradbury's Lost Mars and and uh, see if we can do that in this manner as well. Where, when it all comes together, because I've got, I've got some more questions, but where can we see it once it, once it actually, you know, you, you've finished it? Is it going to be internet bound or are you, will you be able to kind of hawk it around the, the TV networks? It's going to, well, initially our, our, our idea, and actually we're, we're, even though we're still raising money and, and people can, can still pledge uh, on, on spacecommandmovie.com uh, via Kickstarter, uh, we're actually in active pre-production now. We're building sets, and spaceship sets, and spacesuits, and uh, designing aliens and androids and robots, and you know the whole nine yards. And I'm, as I said, I'm actively writing. We're also doing little half-hour stories as well uh, that we're outlining now. And, um, and we, well, the plan is DVD, Blu-ray, downloadable content, uh, video on demand, all all of those things. And and if someone comes along and wants to, you know, show them theatrically, that would be fine too. In terms of the networks. Um, and I don't mean to knock the networks. I, I really don't mean to disparage them. Oh, uh, knock they, them, Mark. Knock them because they've, <laughs> they've, they've done some cruel things in their time. Yes, they have. The, um, uh, you know, if, if a network comes to us and says we'd be interested in, in perhaps partnering on this, we'll, we'll certainly entertain that conversation. But, but it's very funny because as I was developing this project, um, another one of my projects, Magic Time, which is based on a series of novels I did for HarperCollins recently, um, there's a fellow named Gabe Sachs, and he's a big what we call a showrunner in television. He was on shows like Freaks and Geeks and Just Shoot Me, and uh, he ran Beverly Hills 90210, the recent one. And he, he and his partner wrote the Diary of a Wimpy Kid movies. And he, he and I are partnered on Magic Time uh, to take to the networks. And he, said, and he was very interested in Space Command, and he said, well, you know, we could, we could walk this into the networks. And I said, uh, no, let's not do that. I, I'd rather t- try this new route. Cause I'd never raised money before, and I wanted to see if I could raise the budget for these films. And... Uh, uh, via via the audience directly because I, I in a way I, I trust the audience 
a lot more than I trust a network executive. I know that, if, for instance, we're going to be at Comic-Con and we're going to have a big panel and show um, new footage and, and new, new designs. And my friend Ian McCaig, who was the lead character designer on the last three Star Wars films, he designed Darth Maul and Queen Amidala. He's aboard. He worked on the Avengers. He designed the Hulk for the Avengers and the, uh, those creatures on those sky sleds. And he designed John Carter. Uh, he's designing all our characters, so he's going to be on the panel as well, showing his new designs. But I, but I know that if I'm a room full of the fans, they you know they'll be receptive. They'll like what we're up to. They'll get it. Whereas if I was in a room full of network executives, I think it would be a much harder go. I think they'd be much more dubious. They'd be going, "Well, what what is this? We don't Android. What what's an Android? You know?" And uh, you know they think it's a telephone. You know so. Uh, you know, so I think um, you know. I think that's uh, you know. I, I'm sort of with my people on this project. You, you know about when you you put it on Kickstarter. How did you did you think you were going to feel? Was there any time when you just thought, I don't know if this is going to. You know what I mean? Yes, I've got the kind of passion. Is well, it? It's you, funny. Yeah, well, it's funny, Tony, because you know, uh, throughout my career, I've I've experienced uh, both failure and success, and 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 success is actually a lot more pleasant. And uh, so it's. <laughs> <laughs> but but going to Kickstarter. I really had no idea. I'd never done this before. I, you know, it, it, we, we, uh, I, Neil Johnson, who, who is, is uh, my producer on this and will be directing some of these films, and I'll be directing some of them as well, um, we said, okay, well, you know, and he's a master of low-budget, high-quality production. He does these big science fiction films on a very low, low budget. He's really skillful. He comes out of music videos and commercials, really knows his stuff. And I said, okay, well, how much, how much should we set as a target goal? And it was $75,000. And we thought, well, we'll give ourselves two months to raise that. And, uh, and we raised it in just over three days. And now we're up to $162,000, and we still have a number of weeks to go, and we're, and we're going to end the campaign at, uh, at Comic-Con. So I was very gratified that, that the money came in and is continuing to come in. And, and a lot of people are, are promoting us and backing us. Neil Gaiman did a, did a little video promoting us, and Amber Benson from, Benson from Buffy wants to be in our project, and Armin Shimmerman's aboard, and Ethan Phillips from Voyager's aboard, and Doug Jones from Pan's Labyrinth, and he plays Abe Sapien, and Hellboy is, is aboard. These are our cast, you know, and uh, you know, Robert Picardo, um, we're looking for a role for him, and Billy Mummy from Babylon 5 and Lost in Space. You know, he's, he's eager to be aboard. So, you know, it's, it's, I'm doing exactly what I would do if it was a network show, except I'm doing it on my, you know, just with the team that I'm choosing. So, um, but, I'm, you know, but, the, the, but the, the, the trade-off is you really have to be able to do high-quality production for a much lower budget than the networks. If we were doing this at network, we'd have millions of dollars. It's funny, Brandon Braga, you know, is about to pledge to our project, and I was talking to him. He comes off Star Trek, and he recently ran Terra Nova, and, uh, you know, and, and all of the, these TV people and these movie people are very interested in what I'm doing. They're very interested in the uh, in the model, you know, because it's so you know it's so interesting. That's what I was going I was going to ask you, Mark. There is, you know, I'd, do you think they are taking notice of, of what you're doing, your little project? Yes, they are. I, the other day, I ran, I was at a, a cafe uh, having breakfast, and I ran into a friend of mine named Mark Fergus, and he wrote Children of Men and Iron Man and Cowboys and Aliens, and he was just fascinated and, and very supportive uh, because, you know, the, all of us who work in the studio and network world, we have these frustrations because even, even when you sell something and even when it gets made, it, you know, often, it, I mean, I've been very lucky in my career. I've sold over 100 scripts and ha- I have hundreds of hours of produced credits and that was all through the networks and studios and most of what I've written has come out exactly the way I intended. So I'm very proud of the work uh, that was done on Star Trek Next Generation and, you know, Babylon 5 and Deep Space Nine and Sliders and you know, even shows like Friday the Thirteenth, uh, the series that I story edited. Um, you know, my and you know, my work sort of speaks for itself. But uh, but often, you know, there's a lot of frustrations, and uh, 
and you just get, get to a point where if you don't need the, the networks in the studios, well, let's try a different route. Um, it's a lot more direct. It's a lot, in, in many ways, it's a, lot, it's a lot easier to do it this way. You know what I think as well, though, is, yes, you're, you're going away from the networks, and that's great. But in a way, though, do you not think, Mark, this is almost your mate's money, you know, your friends' money. You know, you're dealing with a kind of your, your true fans here who put in, you know, $20. It might not be much, but it's yeah. still very personal. Do you know what I mean? It's still like you're getting some kind of people who have just probably got, you know, like $5 each. Cause I see you, you pledge your star from five all the way down and you get yes. some backers that just put in like a fiver and you've got to, you know, you've got to be good to them. Yes, it's true. It's true. And I, 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 have real, I have a strong sense of responsibility. Some people put in as little as $5. Some people have put in five or 10,000. There was a guy in Italy who put in $5,000. There's other people who put in 10. We even have higher pledge amounts that go all the way up to, uh, 250,000 and 500,000 uh, on our website and uh you know so i mean 500,000 for $500,000 you get a premiere of the film in your hometown anywhere in the world and also you get a real an actual trip into space where we've been talking to the, <laughs> the the companies that provide provide actual trips into space you know and uh so that's that's quite a perk and for $250,000 you actually get the entire spaceship set on a flatbed truck so <laughs> so 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 for for those for those uh, millionaires who are sitting around wondering what to do with all those heaps of money uh definitely uh, definitely go to spacemanmovie.com I tell you what is good though, Mark, and it, you can tell you've kind of you've sat down and thought about it because, like you say, your pledges just cover so much and make it, you know, exciting. There, you know, like you say, the start from five pound all the way down. Did that take yeah. a bit of time? Because I, I guess it did. You know, you're kind of thinking, where do you start? How much do you offer things for? That's right. That's right. Well, you know, I, I actually spent several months, well, you know, researching this. For, fortunately, I run a roundtable of writers and directors and actors and producers and editors and composers and novelists. We meet every Thursday at a restaurant here in Los Angeles. We have offshoots in New York and Dallas and Phoenix and San Francisco and uh, Santa Barbara and one starting in London, interestingly enough. And uh, I've been running this every Thursday for 19 years. It started with six people and now it's several thousand. And uh, so when I started learning about Kickstarter and finding out about Kickstarter, where people could raise money for projects, I, uh, I reached out to members of my table and I said, please send me information about Kickstarter. And they sent me a lot of information and I, I started learning about it. And then Neil Gaiman, his wife, uh, Neil told me about Amanda Palmer, his wife who raised a million dollars on Kickstarter for, for her album, her musical album. And uh, so I started studying that as well. And then people just started coming to me and offering to help. And I, I now have this big team of people, um, interns and well, all sorts of folks and you know, social media guys. And you know we meet and, and talk and you know just every everyone's helping it's 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 really wonderful you know because I, I i see your initial and i don't know if this is all like clever marketing on your behalf or something but you know like it started off as a kind of a low figure you're after and now you're yeah. kind of going you're, you're kind of moving not moving the goalposts in, in a kind of cruel way but you're kind of you're thinking <laughs> let's get some more money did you think yeah. you set your goals too low to begin with and you maybe should have set it say for like two hundred thousand, or were you just didn't expect the kind of the support? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I, with Kickstarter, um, you have to make, meet the goal or you don't get any of the money. And so we wanted to reach a goal that we could, you know, achieve. And because I'd never raised money before, I didn't want to. I, I talked to Neil Johnson, my partner, and I said, okay, what's the minimum we can do this for? And it would be murder to make it for a low number because, you know, it's very hard. Every, you know, there are hard money costs, you know, building sets and buying fabric for costumes and feeding your actors and things like that. And, uh, you know, and so... 
So we set out the number that was the minimum, including the, the fees that Kickstarter and Amazon take and, and, and the actual cost of making the different rewards. Because when people pledge, they get things like jackets and, and watches and, 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 and books about the making of Space Command. And they, they actually get, get swag, you know, swag for, for, so it isn't just a, a one-way street. And uh, so we figured in those, produ- those costs as well. And, uh, and, but, but then once we, started, once we made our goal very quickly, then it's sort of like every dollar – makes it easier, makes it better, makes it something we can finish faster. And I also put out the information that if we hit $200,000, people will get the movie. And also Doug Drexler, my effects guy, and I, he's also a producer on this, are, are, have been talking about um, half-hour stories as well. Because basically, since it's through the viewpoint of these two families, the sto- one of the stories I'm writing is, is down far down this time frame where we're moving out to the stars and we're encountering alien races and so forth. But the earlier stories are taking place in our solar system where we're still slower than light, and uh, colonizing Mars, terraforming the outer worlds and moons, uh, and so forth, and uh, and that. So, so we're we're going to jump around throughout the time frame in the different stories uh, through the different generations generations of this family, and uh, so it's it's a really big fun story. So, so two hundred thousand we'll do the first movie and one of those half hour stories. If we reach half a million, we'll actually give people the first two movies. That's uh, anyone who pledges at a fairly low level will get both the first two movies, and we're doing minimally four films three of these half-hour stories, I think will be going on far beyond that, actually. I'm, I'm envisioning this uh, just like you would envision Babylon 5, where it was a five-year arc. We, t- we talk about this as a 200-year arc, and uh, it's, it's quite fun. It's really fun to, uh, to do all the, you know, sort of move out into space manned exploration. I'm, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson's been lobbying hard for manned, ex- manned exploration and manned colonization of, of, our, of our solar system and beyond, and I'm, I'm a huge proponent of those things. You know, like you said, you're doing it yourself now in Kickstarter, so basically, you've you've got to do everything. Do you go? I mean, I don't really actually understand the business at all. Do you go and just book a studio? Do you, do, is that is that how you do it? You really go and book a studio for like say two months and do the whole lot there? No, actually, what what what's happened is uh, Neil Johnson, my partner, who's British by the way, and then he grew up uh, in Australia, so he's quite a, quite a character. He's got this big bushy mane of hair. He's a heavy metal guy. He's great and. Uh, he, uh, so in, and, and when you see that we, on, on our thing on, on spacecommandmovie.com, our Kickstarter page, we actually have a video where we pitch the project and you get to see me and Doug Drexler and Neil and all of our team. It's really fun. It's really, it's really uh, a, a two-way conversation. But what, a part of the genesis of this was that Neil rented a warehouse and he started building sets and, and, uh, you know, and, and accruing costumes and prop weapons and all of these things and, and uh, you know, alien makeups and, and giant walking machines and all of these wonderful things. And so we started – basically it's a model very, very akin to Deep Space Nine or Babylon 5 or Star Trek where you basically build your standing sets – Build your costumes and props and all of those things, and then you utilize them in in you know in new, many stories uh, within the same you know umbrella. So whether it's a Deep Space Nine story or a Babylon Five story or a space a Space Command story, it's the same production model. And it's just as you continue to film, you you just acquire more space, so the, the warehouse grows. And uh, so that's what we're doing. It's very much an independent project. We're not because you couldn't. First of all, you couldn't afford to rent space at Paramount or Warner's or Universal at this budget level. Nor would you want to. Their their overhead is what makes some of these things so expensive. I mean, um, you know, John Carter was two hundred and fifty million dollars. That's a huge number. But you know, the studio is a machine that that costs a lot of money. And uh, some of that is is on the screen, and some of that is you know where they go to lunch. <laughs> so you know. It's uh, so we just kind of are very, very lean, a very lean operation, but it's all going on the screen. Uh, last question there, Mark. Are you having fun? 
Oh, yeah. It's great. This is just, I mean, how could it not be fun? I mean, uh, Ian McKay called me last night and he's talking about, well, you know, we're, we've, we've got a motion test of the aliens and uh, we're, 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 you know, we're, we're, he, we're, he's designed, he said, I have an idea for an Android design that we've never seen before. It's like, cool. And of course, Doug Jones is going to play that character. So Ian will draw Doug as that as that character and then and then we also see, you know Ian who's our designer sat down with the actors Christy, uh, there's uh, Catherine McEwen is one of our actresses she's not well known she's another uh, she's a Brit <laughs> and she's quite wonderful and so he sat down with her and me and we started talking about okay well here's who the character is you know so it's the script informing the actor and the designer but then all three of us talking together to build that character both in terms of the look and in terms of the internal landscape of the, of the characters so it's great fun and uh uh, it, and uh, and also, I'm not waiting to be picked. It's lovely because of the fans, because of the audience. Uh, you know, you know, all the fans. You know, we've all had the conversation as viewers, saying, "Well, gosh, that sounded that show sounded so great, and it went south. And what happened? Why did it go bad? Or, or gee, my favorite show was canceled. Or, or I heard about this project, and it, and the studios decided not to make it, even though they developed it. What a shame! You know, we've all said that over the years. And then by removing the studios and networks, if the fans and the audience want to see this. All they have to do is sign up and bang, it gets made. So I love that. I love the fact that we don't need the studios or networks. And, you know, this is a hopeful vision. A lot of these shows lately have been very dark and very dystopic. I loved Battlestar Galactica, but it was very, very, very dark. And Prometheus is very dark. And we're doing something very hopeful and saying there's, there's a greater future and there's a hopeful future. And I like being able to take a stand for that and create those films and, and that vision. Mark, it's just, honestly, I just wish you all the success. You know what I mean? I just, I'm excited as anything. Do you know what I mean? Because, like you say, it's it's from you. Do you know what I mean? You, you've got a track record there that it's kind of second to none. And when this comes out, and just like you say, just to make the the, the networks and everybody, you know, the studios, just think, oh, oh, you know what I mean? Just that kind of <laughs> little gulp they get in the back of the throat. Oh, maybe maybe they're onto something here. You know, that'd be just fantastic. So, Mark, listen, good luck with everything. Well, thank you, thank you, Tony. And I'm so glad that we're that we're talking on Starship Sofa because I really consider you part of the family. I, I'm a, I'm a fan of your show and a, and, a, and I listen every week and uh, and I'm really glad that that we got to talk about this project here. Oh, Mark, very kind. Thank you very much, sir. There you go. I've put a link on to the Kickstarter page for Mark. Please, oh, please, please, please go over there. Like you say. The quality that kind of mark does anyways, do you know what I mean, is just second to none. And if you can get this off the ground, it's just fantastic. So that is today's show, 244. Big thank you to everyone who's kind of came on board and helped out. means a lot. Thank you so much. And we are just, you know, this kind of world domination that's happening now. now. Starship's well, it's called... District of Wonders, that's that's kind of the hub page. That's all getting sorted out. And we are still like in the background working busily away on Crime City Central and protecting Project Pulp. Two new shows coming soon to the family of Starship Sofa. And listen, if you want to donate, you know, and kind of make sure that we kind of running smoothly, that will be so appreciated. You know what I mean? Do... One of the kind of main things is just to kind of get the subscriptions levels up there and get people, you know, subscribing to the show, just making sure week after week after week we can keep on doing this. And like I say, cover the bases with all these different genres we're now kind of dabbling in with some, you know, kind of the new shows as well. And I've listened to like practice runs of Crime City Central 
and it's just fantastic. You know what I mean? Yes, you're kind of thinking, I'll do, I'll start, you know, I'm kind of science fiction, but just listening to that, you know, the kind of the quality we kind of we've got, the stories and the production values, just going to be fantastic. And I know what's coming in the pulp. Do you know what I mean? That's going to be a kind of it's actually going to be a totally different way as a kind of show as well because there's a lot of those stories from the kind of early 1900, you know what I mean, 1900, 1930s, they weren't very politically correct, you know what I mean, they kind of make your eyes smart, some of them, but we don't want to kind of not play some of them because it's just kind of, you know, that's not the point. What we want to do is kind of play some of these stories that kind of had a certain edge to it nowadays that some people just kind of turn their nose up and just think that's terrible, but we need to kind of discuss it as well and that's what it's all about. So that show's coming as well. So I hope you, you do kind of, you know, it'll not be long now. I know kind of Josh is now busy fixing up the sites and everything like that. Going to have a few more practice runs, get a few more narrations in. If you want to narrate, please pop over. Give us a shout, starshipsover at gmail.com. If you want to kind of, like say, donate and subscribe, keep it going month in, month out, that would be fantastic as well. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal can they win through planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Their integrity unscathed. Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of... Set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.